John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, as we read earlier, is a, it's a, really a fascinating passage. And it's used uh, often uh, to discuss a lot of different topics. John's a masterful writer. He begins in the first chapter by connecting both the Jewish and the Greek audience. He does that by, first of all, for the Jews, expounding, talking about the glory of the eternal God. And he captivates them with this thought that there is one God and He is eternal and that He is the provider and that He is the creator of all things. And he connects the Greek audience by talking of Him as the Word. And he really captivates them with this thought of the Word, the eternal Word, the, the glorious Word which has come down now and dwelt with us in Jesus Christ. And we've talked about these wonderful truths. And then he moves on into a narrative section in 19-51 through 51 where he talks about the uh, baptism of John the Baptist. He talks about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And now he comes down into the second chapter and he's going to give the first of seven miracles. Seven signs that he organizes the whole writing around. Seven miracles and seven teachings of Jesus. Now remember, the purpose of John in writing his gospel is what? That those who read it might believe in Jesus as the Christ. And in believing in Him, receive eternal life. That's his purpose. It's not a a storybook for, you know, for a little... Uh, stories here or there. It's not about morality. It's not about making you a better person. It's not about giving you a better life. His whole one central purpose is this. Jesus Christ, believe in Him, and receive eternal life. That's it. And so he organizes the writing around seven miracles and seven teachings of Jesus Christ, which makes sense. Jesus, imagine this. Jesus is the central character of of the New Testament. He is the central character of the Old Testament. The whole Bible is centered on Jesus Christ. We, we need to be careful as we walk through the book of John, as we look at any book in the Bible, any verse, you need to be careful that you don't turn it into some relative moralistic teaching. It is not about Uh, When we get to the great miracles here, like this one, the water and the wine, it's not about whether we should have prohibition of alcohol or we should all be drunks. That's not what it's about. That's what people try to make it about, but that's not what this this story in the Scripture is about. It's about Jesus Christ and His glory. It's not about uh, when we get to the feeding of the 5,000, it's not about the cool little kid who brought five loaves and two fish. And, whoa, what a story. Jesus broke the bread and prayed over it and gave it to the people. And Man, that's exciting. No, it's about the glory of Jesus Christ and the display of the glory of God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, to us in the provision for the 5,000. It's not a story about little events that happened. The Bible is a book about one story. God redeeming His people through one person. Jesus Christ, and then through one ending, the glory of God. That's that's what the whole book is about. So when you look at this book, don't be intimidated. It's 66 books about the same person and the same event over and over and over again. 
doesn't matter how smart you are, how slow you are. You might have a 70 IQ, you might have 170 IQ. That does not matter. You might have been to school or not been to school. This book is not complicated. It is about Jesus Christ and God's plan of redemption. That's it. Every time you read a story, think of that. And you will gain the context and the picture of the whole book. Don't make it too complicated. We're going to talk today about several things. Alcohol is going to be involved here. I know some of you would like me to preach some message about alcohol. Uh, Marriage and the feast and marriage. And should we have a feast around marriage any longer or should we not? Annalie would love me to talk about that. She's going to get married. She'd love for me to talk about how her parents or Locke's family actually should be paying for a week-long celebration uh, at their home and having, and we'd all like that because we get to come, <laughs> maybe. And, um, you know, we could talk about that. We could, we could talk about the relationship of Jesus and His mother. You know, I've heard this sign, this great passage used in a uh, Mother's Day service about woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he starts talking about how that wasn't disrespectful and, and uh, it's good things. That's not what this story is about. Now, we're going to mention those. We're going to glance over those things to get to the point. Because the point is in verse 11. Now, I'm going to skip down and give you the point. Then we're going to talk about it a little bit. Look at verse 11. This, the first sign of Jesus, he did in Cana in Galilee and did what? manifested His glory. That's the point. It's not about all those other things. This whole 11 verses is about the manifestation of Jesus' glory to His disciples. And then He and His disciples stayed there a few days. Then they left. We're going to see that in verse 12. They left. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about His glory. Let's look at the place of this miracle. The account begins with a time marker on the third day, right? If we see, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, don't jump too quick to the conclusion that we're talking about Tuesday, necessarily. This, I believe, is in the chronological order of this week that John has been talking about. Go back to verse 19. Go back to verse 19 in the first chapter. And we see the story of John the Baptist and the Jews sending people from the priest and the Levites to him to question John. That's one day. All right? And then we come down to verse 29. The next day. That's the second day for those who aren't very good at math in the days of the week. And then we come down to verse 35. The next day. We're on the third day now. And then it says in verse 43, the next day. This is the fourth day in this week of Jesus' life. And now we come down to the last last of chapter 1 and move into the first verse of chapter 2 on the third day. The third day since when? Since the last day I gave you information. In other words, there's missing information we don't hear about. And then John skips down to the third day. The end of the week. The seventh day of just first week of Jesus' public ministry. This is it. The end of his first week is culminating with the miracle or the sign at the wedding feast. I'm not sure what day of the week it fell on. Although there are some clues and maybe we should take those clues and believe it was Wednesday or 
something like that, but I'm not willing to go there. This is just what we know. It was on the third day of this week that he's accounting for, all right? So we have the, the day. It's on the seventh day of the first week of John recording the first public week of Jesus' ministry. This is after John the Baptist has been questioned. Andrew and John and Philip and Nathaniel and Simon Peter have been called his disciples. And now this last event of the week is the miracle at Cana. Jesus probably began his week in Nazareth and ended his week here in Cana. He probably began in Nazareth coming back from the 40 days in the wilderness and then into his hometown and then on to John the Baptist at the Jordan where he was baptized and we see his public ministry begin. And so there's order with God. There's order with John's writing. He's bringing us into a story. We must make it clear that a wedding in the day of Christ was a true celebration. Um, And uh, in the Middle East today, still... Wedding is celebrated. It's not just a one-day event, come and have a good time and go home. A wedding is an event of a lifetime. It was meant to happen one time. So you broke the bank, literally, taking care of this family. And so they would enjoy the sending off of their son or their daughter in in a grandiose way. Traditionally, the Jews would have begun their celebration at the home of the groom. And they would all started there with a celebration, a, a, a party um, of drinking wine and, and celebrating, recounting maybe his childhood and telling uh, of, of the future and giving him hope for the future. And then they would have proceeded from there. The groom and his party would have gone to the bride's home and they would have brought her down the main street of the village celebrating her. She would have come in all kinds of pomp and circumstance beautiful, dressed in this wonderful dress and attire, and she would have been brought with her whole family back to the groom's home where they would have had a wedding ceremony and then they would have consummated their marriage and the family and the friends would have continued to celebrate. A a traditional wedding in this day would have lasted at least a week. At least a week, not just one day. They were grand events. And they usually, and and by tradition, we know that the Wedding ceremony itself occurred on Wednesday. All virgins were married on Wednesday. And a widow would have been married on Thursday. So that, that we, that's why we believe that this third day was Wednesday because it was right at the ceremony and we believe that, uh, that it occurred on Wednesday. So we have the setting of the place. John makes the point in this first two verses that Mary was already at the home and that she was not on the list of invitees. Look at the way he talks about her. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus and his disciples were invited in verse 2. Mary was not invited. I believe John is cluing us in that this is either a relative of Jesus or it's a close friend of the family. Mary, probably already widowed at this time, has gone and now she's serving in the home there while the marriage ceremony is taking place. We can gather that by the information given that when she tells the servants to do something, they go do it. When she realizes the wine's gone, which just a normal guest, everyday guest, probably wouldn't have known that. She sees we're running short on wine. We got to solve the problem. She goes to Jesus. She was probably more than a guest. She was either a close relative or a close friend to this person being married. And she's 
taking care of things. She's there in the home. And this probably uh, signifies that it was somebody very close to their family. So we have the details of the setting. But why did Jesus choose this to be his first place for a miracle? I mean, he could have done it anywhere. He could have done it at any event. He could have done it at a private setting with just the disciples. They're the only ones who believe in him anyway. You you know, if you get to verse 11, nobody else believes. Nobody else is magnifying Christ. Only the disciples. Nobody, we're going to see later in the chapter, leaves with him from Cana. Only his disciples leave with him. Why do it here? Why at a wedding? Well, there's a few reasons. First, it gives us a sanctification of the institution of marriage. Marriage is not just a state of living with a man or living with a woman. Marriage is not just a state of uh, fulfilling the craving that we have naturally for the sexual relationship. Marriage is a beautiful institution that is a public and private covenant between one man, one woman, and God. Marriage is not negotiable in God's terms. It is a solid, sound institution that is the basis for all of society. As the home goes, so goes society. Homes fall apart, society falls apart. Church falls apart. Everything falls apart. And Jesus is showing us that, I believe, by doing this miracle, this first sign, in a marriage ceremony. Second, By performing this sign at a social event, Jesus is pointing that his ministry is going to be totally different from John the Baptist. He's separating himself from John, his cousin. Now, John, we know, toiled out in the wilderness. He wasn't a very attractive person. He, uh, oh, he was attractive, but for kind of a weird nod type sense. You know, people flock to him. You know, it's like people uh, go to the circus to see, you know, the two-headed man or something. I mean, people just were engrossed by this prophet who spoke so boldly, wore camel's clothes and ate locusts and wild honey and lived out in the Jordan Valley and he's baptizing all these people. He was kind of a spectacle and people showed up by the hordes there to hear the message. Why? Because he was the little light pointing to the big light who is coming. God made him a spectacle. He was a spectacle. He was a fool for God in a sense. He spent his whole career out there. We wouldn't even know of him except that he's the forerunner of Christ, probably. Jesus is not this way. Jesus' ministry is going to be lived with the people. Jesus isn't going to go to a wilderness and hide up in a cave and seclude himself from the world. Jesus, every miracle he does is downtown, prominent, right in the place of gathering. He doesn't do things in secret. He's in public. He doesn't wall himself off from sinners. He associates with sinners. He eats with sinners. He's going to be accused of being a drunk and a wine-bibber, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a man who ate too much and drank too much. Though that's not true. That was a uh, mischaracterization of who Jesus was. That was an attack against his spotless character. But yet, that's what people said. When he brought Zacchaeus out of the tree, what's the accusation? This man associates with sinners. This man, he lets that prostitute touch his feet. But he starts his ministry, so to say, I'm not John. John had his purpose. God gave him purpose. He was meant for to be a man in the wilderness. Ah, the spectacle. I'm coming to you. 
I'm dwelling, I'm pitching my tent with you. Not in the wilderness, not in seclusion. I'm doing it with you. I'm coming to you. And so we have this idea. Third, by performing this first sign at the wedding, Jesus is beginning and ending with the symbol of the bride and the bridegroom. Think of this. Jesus began His earthly ministry with the disciples at a wedding feast. And we now are waiting and looking forward to a wedding feast. Revelation 19, 6-10 says, John, this same writer later would write, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Jesus starts His ministry with a miracle at a wedding feast. And I tell you, we are looking forward to a great day where we will be invited to the marriage of the Lamb as His bride. And He will again do a miracle. He will unite all people under His name, for His glory, at His table, where His Father will pay the price for the celebration. I tell you, I get excited thinking about the glory of Jesus. Think about it. He's, at, and he's an invited guest at someone else's wedding that someone else paid for. And the provision runs out. There's not enough for all the guests. And Jesus says, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. I'll give them what they need. I'll perfect it. I'll bring, bring all the wine they'll ever need for this wedding in symbol of the day we will have a wedding feast that will not run out. And it will not have an end. And it is paid for by the Father through His Son. And we will celebrate and enjoy that forever. That's what John says in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want to stop there, make a point here. You can only come to a wedding if you are invited. You can't invite yourself. The one being married has to invite you. People ask me all the time, you know, you got this strange belief that God chooses who will be in heaven. It's clear, isn't it? Behold, Blessed are those who are what? Invited to the wedding feast. Not blessed are those who try to barge in. Not blessed are those who invite themselves. Blessed are you if you are invited to this wedding feast of the Lamb. And so we can see that the Father makes the list out. Jesus and the Father have made the list. They have invited those who will be there and they will all come. They will all be at this wedding, at this feast, and in this worship service.
in heaven at the bridegroom's celebration with his bride. So we have the setting. We have the place. We have the first sign that Jesus is going to perform. So we have the predicament of the groom. You need to put away any thought that you have that the Bible is somehow condoning drunkenness or an orgy-like behavior by this sign. Jesus would not have give any credence to the loss of control in this area of strong drink. The Bible does not condone drunkenness, but it also is very important to say that the Bible does not forbid drinking alcohol. Remember that the point of this passage is not to discuss social problems that come from drinking or not drinking. The point is to, is to show us the glory of Jesus Christ. But even in doing that, if it was a sin to drink alcohol, Jesus would not have created wine for people to drink. He would then be an accomplice to their sin. And He would not have done that. So, he is not condoning drunkenness and he is not condoning the forbidding of any drink. He is displaying his glory. The predicament of the groom and his family is, is that they have run out of wine before the end of the celebration. This is a major offense in the ancient world. This is a crime. You could be drugged into debtor's court and sued for running out of alcohol or preparation in their day. And you would have to pay at least half of what everybody brought as a gift for your children. Think about it. This father is not just socially scarred because he's run out of strong drink. His wallet is about to be a lot lighter. Jesus is not being frivolous by providing wine. He is providing for their lack. He is taking care of a serious problem. That they have. The miracles are not some dog and pony show. The miracles are for the glory of God and they always solve real problems blindness, leprosy, lack of wine. It's a problem that Jesus is solving. It's a real, verifiable problem. This family is in deep trouble. Obviously, if they don't have enough money to buy enough wine, they don't have enough money to pay people half of what they brought. And so Jesus is solving the problem. Jesus is, is fixing this felt need of the people. And it is a major need. Mary goes to her firstborn son to solve the problem. Look, look at uh, the text in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. The... the the fact that Mary goes to Jesus shows that she already has a clue as to who he is. Now, Jesus has never done a miracle at this point. But think of it. As a young woman, a virgin, she conceives a child. That's a miracle. I'm not going to get into the biology of that. But if you don't understand, ask your mom and dad when you go home. That's a miracle. That's not supposed to happen. And then an angel shows up and tells her, don't worry. Even though you have a child and it's not Joseph's child, it's not any other man's child, it's God's child. 
His name is Emmanuel. God is with us. God is our Savior. Jesus will be His name. Wouldn't you go to this child if there was a simple problem of not having enough wine? If he can be born of a virgin, obviously he has unbelievable power that we don't know anything of. And so Mary goes to him. It also probably gives us the clue that Joseph has already passed away because Joseph is not mentioned in the passage to be there with Mary and she goes to her oldest son, which would have been the tradition and still is of the Middle East. When the husband dies, the son takes over. The oldest son takes over and cares for his mother. And so Jesus is doing this. He's taking care of his mother. He's taking care of the problem. But look at his response. Woman, what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with us? That doesn't sound like a very loving response. My hour has not yet come. This, this is, doesn't seem like Jesus. Why does, he call, why does he call her mother? Why doesn't he refer to her in some affectionate way? You know, why doesn't he give her due respect? Well, don't go too far. Woman here is, is used commonly in the ancient world as an expression of respect to an older woman. This is the way you would respond to an older woman. This also shows us there is a break between Jesus and his family. Jesus is no longer her son. Jesus is her Lord. Jesus is her Savior. He now, when he was a child, was under her authority. Now he is directly under his Father in Heaven's authority. He's transitioned from being a boy to being Jesus, the Savior. And so he's not, it wouldn't seem right for him to refer to her in some authoritarian way. He responds to her as an equal as an adult. He's out of the home. He's an adult. He started his own life. And beyond that, he is the Savior. The expression used, my hour has not yet come, is a common expression in the Old Testament. Judges 11 and 12 and 2 Samuel 16.10 are examples of how this was used in ancient times. And it also is a reference to Christ, by Christ to the cross. My hour has not yet come. He's going to say this over and over again until chapter 12, and then he's going to say, my hour has come. Shifting gears. I'm headed to the cross. I'm not headed to the cross today, but I'm going in the future. He's always got the cross in mind, even as he begins his ministry. So Jesus is not being disrespectful. He's showing her that he is no longer her son. He is the Lord. And he's pointing the people to the cross, to the day that he would die on the cross. So Mary tells the servants, do whatever he commands. So we have the predicament. Now we have the provision. Jesus gives provision. Stone water pots, as we find in this text, are common purification pots containing water for purification. Why? Stone doesn't grow algae. It doesn't have contaminant in it. An earthen pot would have gotten muddy and dirty after a time. It wouldn't have been used for cleaning anything. It would have been nasty itself. This is pure and clean well water that has no impurity in it. And it's dipped from, people don't dip into it, it's dipped from and then poured over their hands as they eat. So these, this water, I've heard it said, was probably yuck and gross and used to wash feet. Listen, this water was pure, it was clean. It didn't have impurities in it. This water you would have wanted to drink. 
to quench your thirst. But it wasn't drinking water, it was purification water. It was used in the Jewish ceremony of purification. Hold that in your mind. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. There were 30 gallons of water in each of these pots. There are six pots, 180 gallons, plenty of wine, no matter how much you drink, to get you to the end of a ceremony that's going to end that day. Why did Jesus give them so much? If he wasn't encouraging drunkenness, what was he doing? He was showing that he is the provider. He doesn't give us a little bit. He gives us abundance when he provides for us. He gives us more than we could ever desire or hope for. More we could ever ask for. He gives us in abundance when we have a need. And so, Jesus purifies this water. The water is filled to the brim. Jesus changes the water to wine. We're not quite sure when it was changed. It's just changed. This shows His creative power. He takes water and makes it into wine. Just like He took dust and made a man, He took water and made wine. It's not the same. If you go look at the substance of wine and water, they're not the same chemical makeup. This is a total transformation, a total change into a new substance. The nature of this wine had to have been supreme. We can see that in the response of the master of the feast who is a guest of high honor who presides over the thing. He is the toast master, he might be called. And so they bring him this wine, he drinks it. They weren't afraid that he would drink it and, and get yuck in his mouth. They were afraid, they may be afraid that he would drink it and only taste water and ask, where'd you get this wine from? But they weren't afraid he was going to be drinking foot water or something like that. They weren't afraid of that. What were they afraid of? If they were afraid of anything, they were afraid it wasn't wine. And he would say, this is, you got this from the wrong pot. This is water. But they take it to him on the command of Christ. He drinks it and he makes the proclamation, this wine is better than any wine, any of the wine that came before it. This breaks tradition. The groom usually puts the good wine out. Then when they are well drunk, their, their senses are dulled a little. They're having a good time. Then you put the cheap stuff out. And they continue to drink and they finish up the ceremony and go home. It kind of also encourages people to leave. You know, this isn't as good as what we had before. We'll head on out. Honey, let's get the kids and go home. This party's dead. The opposite happens when Jesus makes the wine. The master says, you've saved the best wine till last. How did this wine taste? Unearthly, I would imagine. Like the wine of heaven, probably. It was created pure. It didn't come from a vine. It didn't have dirt. It didn't have impurity. It didn't, it didn't sit and rot in a jug somewhere. It was perfect. And it was a blessing. It was a great gift. As a matter of fact, they probably would have had wine left over, which could have then been used in their daily drinking, which would have saved them money, them being in a tight, straight financially, obviously because they're in this predicament, that's a blessing in itself. Jesus was taking care of their needs. He was giving them an abundance of the best wine ever. So we have the provision. And finally, we have the proclamation of John. John says the disciples believed. They looked at this, water to wine, and they were amazed. They believed. They saw the magnificence of His glory. No one else seems to have been impacted this way. They 
simply leave after that. They go to Capernaum. They, uh, they leave and no one goes with them except his mother and his brothers. The crowd wasn't drawn, drawn to Jesus. They didn't even know probably that this wine had been changed. Only the disciples, the servants, the headmaster, the family. No one else seems to even have a clue that this has taken place, but Jesus still shows His glory in a public place. So what does all this mean to us? You're probably not going to go to a wedding where you're not going to take, see this take place. Besides being a sign of Jesus' ministry, I want you to see, I told you to hold in your mind purification, the water of purification, the Jewish ceremony of purification. Jesus does something very significant here. He takes Judaism and he converts to Christianity. He takes water purification, which was a ceremony of legal requirement for these people. Purification to them would have been a necessity, not a joy. Purification to them would have been a legal requirement. If you ate without being purified, there was punishment. There was always the threat of the law over their life. And now Jesus is saying to the disciples, that day is gone. Now is the day of abundance, grace upon grace. I am here. We're not going to worry so much about the outward cleansing. We're going to worry about the inward joy of knowing Christ as our Savior and the magnificence of His glory. Jesus literally is pictorially giving them the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Things are changing. They don't get it, all of that, at this point. But believe me, they are going to continue to get proof that things are changing. Purification is going to come up again and again in John. And every time, Jesus is going to negate it. You wash your hands and you put on your pair on the outside, and I'm telling you, dress up dead men's tombs. Jesus says, you can purify yourself all you want. Unless God the Father purifies you, you are unclean. Peter's going to say, oh, not, not me, Lord. You won't wash my feet. And he says, if I don't wash your feet, you won't be clean. And he says, not only my feet, my head, my hands, wash me. Jesus takes purification, this Jewish legal requirement, and says, no longer. We're in the age of grace. We're in the day of of purification through the Spirit, not through water. We're in the day of abundance, not lack. We're in the day of grace and joy and living to the fullest, not the day of waiting and wanting. So I ask you, why then do you spend so much of your day and your week trying to make yourself righteous? And you do. If you're like most, you spend your week checking the boxes so that you might be pure. You spend the week dipping water, pouring it over yourself in hopes that you will be righteous. And Jesus says, you'll never be righteous that way. You need Christ. You need His abundance. You need His grace. The point of this is you need Jesus. This groom needed Jesus. His family needed Jesus. They needed, they needed relief from this desire to be pure. They needed to be made pure. 
And Jesus says, in one work, in one miracle, I will do it. And so I ask you, are you pure? Are you pure? If you're making yourself pure, you are unpure. You are not pure. And if Christ makes you pure, even though you sin, He forgives your sin, and you have His righteousness. So I'm going to leave you with that. You have to answer that question. Are you pure? Because if you are not pure, you are not invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. If you are not pure, your destiny is not celebration in heaven. Your destiny is eternal damnation and hell. Are you pure? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this sign.